People get really scared to do hard shit because it hurts. And they feel like their comfort zone is where they need to be. When we get too comfortable, when things are too convenient, if we don't lean into doing hard stuff and putting ourselves through adversity and testing our abilities, we begin to dig holes in our life through food, alcohol, drugs, gambling, pornography, infidelity, binge watching television, video games, you name it. You know deep down inside what you need to do every morning. Every single morning. We might hit the snooze button, ignore the gym, make some bullshit excuse why we're not going to eat clean today, but our conscience knows like, dude, that that was an L. Mm-hmm. That was not a W today. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the amazing podcast of Determined Society. As you can see, we're in a different venue today, but I'm going to bring you much more value and an amazing conversation from an American entrepreneur, a man who escaped communism way back in 1980 and came to America with his family and made the most out of pursuing the immigrant dream and the immigrant edge. This gentleman has built multiple businesses and is now helping others build seven and eight figure businesses. He is a Wall Street best author. He is just a man that is a servant to other men and wanting more for other people. I have with me today, Pedro Schoolian, welcome to the show, buddy. Thanks, man. Appreciate it, Sean. Thanks for coming out, man. Really appreciate it. Man, I, listen, this is awesome. It's a great experience. It's great to actually interview somebody in person. Right. You know, it's like we had this off-the-air conversation, and normally it's this weird virtual bullshit. Now we're here in the room talking stories about you being tracked by air tags and all this different shit. Right. So. Versus being on some kind of digital Zoom type thing where you're having that awkward conversation and you don't know when to click the red button to say goodbye, but you don't want to say it too early. But what if you s- kind of click it too soon and then he was halfway through the sentence? See, that doesn't happen in person. Doesn't happen in person. It's not, there's, no, there's no moments of, you say, you say goodbye. No, you hang up. Yeah. I right. right, right. There's no, there's no weird dance at the end of it. You get what I'm saying. So yeah, no, absolutely, man. Uh, being, being in person is a much different energy, and uh, I know the audience is going to get a ton out of today. Yep. And uh, you know, I, I've always been fascinated how open you are about the immigrant edge. You know, I, <laughs> I'm fully immersed in that because the story of you guys coming over in 1980 when your dad had 150 to $200 in his pocket and a family of what, five, mm-hmm. family right? Of five, yep. And uh, not knowing where the next paycheck or how to feed the family. And then immediately, like you said, has three jobs the next day. Yep. And you witness this man work three jobs from 2 a.m. all the way to 8 p.m. Talk to me a little bit about the impact that made on you as a young boy and going into a man. Yeah, you know what? I always say that I've got, you know, just like Robert Kiyosaki, rich dad and poor dad. And certainly my dad was financially poor, but experienced rich. And then my rich dad, Jim Franco, who was one of my personal training clients, uh, many years later came into my life in my early 20s. He was truly my rich dad. He taught me multiple income streams. He taught me entrepreneurship, leadership. He taught me that when you solve a problem, the more sophisticated the problem that you solve, the more money you can make. Uh, but my dad taught me work ethic, that you can come into a foreign country without speaking the language, understanding the culture, and within days have multiple jobs to be able to you know, take care of your family. They weren't the most glamorous jobs. Mm-hmm. All of them were under the table, getting paid well below minimum wage. However, he was delivering newspapers at two in the morning, then he'd go work at a gas station pumping gas, and then he would go and uh, work at a pizzeria. And like that was his day. And then soon my brother and sister each got a job. I was only six years old when we got here, so I was the baby of the family. But seeing my dad's work ethic, I think, um, like Ed Milet says, a lot of things are 
taught, but I think the most important things are caught, as mm. he says. And I was able to catch work ethic. I was able to catch gratitude. I was able to catch enthusiasm. Like he was always happy to go to work. He was always said, you know, uh, having work is a blessing. You know, in, in Armenian, it translates a lot better. Mm. But he said having work to do is a blessing. He was always grateful for the work that he had. And it wasn't anything glamorous. And the work ethic he had was just instilled in me. So as I grew up and my rich dad, Jim Franco, started to kind of show me the way, it was like putting a supercharger on a car that's just bound to break records. You know, that's an amazing story because you're, you're tying, you know, poor dad and rich dad together. A lot of people have that poor dad, that dad that is going to show them how to work. Uh, my dad was that way. My dad was hustling from sunup to sundown. I didn't know when he was coming home, you know, traffic in Silicon Valley and the San Francisco Bay Area mm -hmm. was big, but the dude was always working. He was doing side jobs on the weekend. So I learned really quickly what it was to work my ass off. And if I wanted to be anything in baseball, then I had to put in the work constantly. So you'd find me in the garage hitting off a tee until my hands bled. There was no reason to be confused why I played in the SEC for baseball. It's because I was doing the fucking work. Yeah, you put in the work. Where the breakdown happens a lot of time in America is they don't have that rich dad. So like Jim Franco, if I'm not mistaken, that's the, the gentleman that came to you, like you said, in your 20s. And he was the guy that helped you build mm -hmm. your business. Your dream was to own a studio, a gym, yeah. right? And he was the gentleman that, mm -hmm. that showed the faith in you. And and really, he was a personal training client, right? I was working in a big box gym. And in fact, I was working very much like my dad. I learned the work <laughs> ethic from my dad. So I was working in a big box gym as a personal trainer. And then I was working at Disneyland as a busboy and a fry cook at Carnation Cafe mm -hmm. Restaurant right there on Main Street, USA. And then at some point, I ended up getting a third job working as a bouncer at a gay bar. Which is my favorite story, by yeah, the way. Which is how Ed and I met. <laughs> That's the joke. Is it a joke? Yes, yeah, okay. it's a, it's okay, a joke. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he did talk to me in the bathroom yeah, yeah, though. Yeah. He there tried to go. shake my hand. I was like, "Your okay, conversations are the exactly. best." Yeah, yeah, yeah. You are confident with it yourself. It was an elbow bump. It's yeah, like, "What's yeah. up, man? Nice What's up, to meet bro? you." What's up? Uh, but but truly, you know, I was working as a bouncer at a gay bar as well. And one day, when I showed up very tired to the personal training session that Jim Franco had purchased from me, again, I was just working as a trainer in a big LA fitness. Mm -hmm. He goes, hey, why are you tired? And he was in his 60s. I was probably 21, 22 years old. He goes, why are you so tired in the mornings on Mondays? I go, Jim, I work at this nightclub on Sunday nights, and it doesn't get out till like 2, 2.30 in the morning. And then your training session is like 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning. I didn't get a lot of sleep, man. Yeah. And he goes, well, you know, you're such a great trainer. I go, I know I am. I don't understand why I have to have two other side jobs to make ends meet. Mm -hmm. All I want to do is do full-time training. And that was the greatest insult that he gave me, which I later realized that was his way of coaching me, was the reason you're broke is because you don't know how to sell, you're an order taker. And I was like, oof, what do you mean? He goes, you're a great trainer, but you don't have clients because you don't know how to sell. You're just an order taker. And I go, what do you mean, man? I, I sold you six months of personal training three times a week, and I was like really letting them have it, right? right? And he goes, no, you didn't. You just took my order. I knew I came in here for three times a week of personal training that I was going to do for six months, learn how to work out well, da da da, and then do it on my own. And you just filled out the paperwork. You're no different than a waiter or waitress at a restaurant. And that was insulting, but that was very well received because no one had cared enough for me to let something land that well. Mm. It landed with me. 
And so I challenged him. I said, well, how do I become a better closer? The next day he shows up with three different books from uh, three different sales trainers, Tom Hopkins, Brian Tracy, Zig Ziglar. But before that, you know, while it's easy to say, well, you know, hey, Pedros, you had a rich dad to mentor you and to give you advice. Um, and then you had your poor dad to learn the work ethic from. Yes, then there was no social media. That was probably late 90s going into early 2000s. No social media. Today, everyone has multiple rich dads, in fact. Sure. Through YouTube, through Instagram, through TikTok, through Facebook, you could be following some of the greatest entrepreneurs on the planet, people that are doing specifically what you want to be doing, and they're putting their content out there for free. They're coaching you. They're educating you. They're paying it forward. In fact, we have access to more rich dads than we know what to do with. The problem is we also have so much distraction mm. that we look beyond the rich dads and get caught up in the booty pictures and in the bullshit social media content that serve no value to mm -hmm. us and instead end up staying in the same place year after year, still hoping that some kind of motivational talk from Tony Robbins or something will spark us into, into, into launching a business finally. When in reality, find the one or two online coaches who are good at what they do, get the free mentoring from them through social media, apply it to your life. When you make enough money, go pay them money to get coaching from them. Yeah, that's a really good point because there's a lot of distraction out there. There's a lot of fucking noise, mm -hmm. right? And I think what happens is people nowadays on social media, because it's so saturated, they want to leave their nine to fives. They want to get out of corporate America as quickly as possible. And I get that because, you know, you and I have spoken. That's exactly what I want to do as well. And they could, they could make poor decisions based on who they give their money to right away. Because you said a really key thing there, and I, I, and I want to really dive into it. Take whatever they're giving as far as their content, apply it to your life, make more money so you can pay them money. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've had more people tell me that they've watched my YouTube videos of my Empire podcast show and gotten themselves to making six figures a year and then been able to then join a coaching program Yeah, or to be able to invest in other ways in themselves. The free content's out there. The work it's not free. It's not free. You know, it's, it's, it's a lot like David Meltzer said on my show a couple of weeks ago. He's been giving away free trainings for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And you can get as much out of his free training as you can, you know, out of a paid program. The only difference is, is the access, the relationship capital, et cetera. Yeah. But I feel like we have it twisted and fucked up, right? They <laughs> yes. want, right? Most people want to be able, they, they feel like, okay, I got to go pay this person right now. Like, I'm going to go pay this person $100,000, you know, and I don't have a proof of concept. I don't have a business and whatnot. What would you say to those people that are wanting to jump into bed with a dude like you or another big name coach? First thing I would tell them is figure out what you want. The coach's job is to help you get to an outcome. Mm -hmm. It's not their job to figure out what your thing should be. That's why the first thing I asked you before the camera started to roll was, hey, so what do you want to do when you leave your nine to five? And you're like, oh, I want to do this thing. I'm like, oh, cool. So you want to be a coach. You've got the thing. You can put your finger on it. Now imagine if I can help you time collapse. Imagine if I can make introductions, if I can help open doors, if I can tell you, avoid this, don't do that, do more of this. This will get you there faster. But when someone comes to me and says, hey, I've got the money, but I don't know what I want to do, I go, go away, figure out what you want to do. Because I don't need that. I do that for my son and daughter. Yeah. <laughs> you're not my son and daughter. Exactly, right. Like, therefore, I'm not. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? So. But people want to 
absolve any kind of decision making mm -hmm. off of them and put it on someone to deflect. else. Yeah. And yeah. a coach is a coach's job is not to do that. Now the coach that takes the money and says they can help you do that, I don't know if they're good at what they do, but that's a conversation for another day because anyone can go buy a blue check mark, go buy a few thousand uh, fake followers and click that little toggle that says entrepreneur or public figure and call themselves a coach. Mm -hmm. Where's the track record? Where's the slew of coaching clients who have given testimonials? That's how you know that guy is worth their money. It's a real shit. It's funny. You, you make me laugh on the, uh, the blue check mark. I mean, God dang, there's people out there trying to sell that shit. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know you could buy it. I had to That's write a fucking crazy. book and become a bestseller to get mine. I didn't realize I could buy it. I wouldn't have written the goddamn book. <laughs> it would have saved you a lot of fucking time. But you wouldn't impact a bunch of people. Right, you know, right. I so. say that facetiously in case uh, of people course. can't get Yeah, I don't want you guys to think he's looking for shortcuts. As you know, this man does not take shortcuts. You do a lot of amazing things just for individuals. And, you know, people see, you know, the Instagram stuff, like, all the cool people that you're involved with. But like, dude, you provide so much value for men. Uh, the, the biggest thing, and I, and I remember this, Larry Hagner, mm -hmm. uh, who I know well, yeah. um, him and his son went to your Squire program. Then you have the great MDK pro Yeah, he's a great dude. Why don't you talk to my listeners a little bit about what those projects are and how they serve people in their lives? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think we can all agree that um, World War I, we sent a lot of men to war. Mm -hmm. uh, World War II, we sent a lot of men to war. Those men all came back, those who lived, and built industries and infrastructures. Jordan Peterson says it well, and we got to give credit where credit is due. Absolutely. He said, who is going to climb the power lines during the storms? Who is going to go into the sewers and have rat rats crawling on them while making sure that we have flowing sewers? Who is going to dig under uh, ground and make sure all the plumbing and piping works to be able to run the infrastructure that we call cities? It is men. And so yeah. men have gone to war. Those that have lived have come back and served their communities in another way. And today we found ourselves in, and at the post uh, 2001, went back to war again, right? So we see men constantly going to battle and then coming back and building, going to battle and then coming back and building. But something happened just around 2010, 2011, where all of a sudden men were just like became disposable. Men became an afterthought. Men became on sitcoms uh, the dopey guy who couldn't even tie his shoes, let, let alone find his way out the front door. Like Chandler for Friends. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so soon, and, and I don't know if it, was a, if it was a byproduct of the rise, the greater rise of feminism. Mm -hmm. I do believe that the opposition, and there is an opposition at work to divide us, to separate us because if there was another war that was going to take place, a war against your freedom this time, mm. locally, not overseas, sure. who is gonna stand up against the opposition? Probably the men. Mm -hmm. So if we can declaw and defang the men, make the men feel like their need for aggression, their need to build, their need for courage and strength, <clears throat> all of that is toxic and shame them for that and hit them on the wee-wee for that mm -hmm. each time they want to show masculinity and name it toxic, then soon you begin to declaw and defang men, those that are going to stand in the gap when the opposition begins the takeover. And so I think it was well planned out, whether it's through feminism or whatever. And so how do you do that? Maybe through pandemics, maybe by through division, maybe through div divisiveness, maybe through politics, through all of it. And so my calling I found over the last six, seven years where I thought I was supposed to be this great big entrepreneur and 
help the world through all my products and services and our franchise and our supplement company, software, whatever. It turns out I was wrong. All of that, the hundreds of millions of dollars that I make are to continue to fight against the opposition and to become a voice for men, to give men permission to become masculine, to stay masculine, to explore their masculinity, to realize that they are of massive value, that they are not to be shamed and they are not to be seen as broken, that they are not to be embarrassed mm -hmm. of their strength and courage and their desire to test the strength of another man. Recently, I saw a post on Instagram, a gentleman I follow, I forget his name now. I love giving people credit for what they wrote, but it was him on the jujitsu mats. Mm -hmm. And he had the guy by the collar and he said, you meet a man, not in person, you meet the true man on the mats. And if mm. you've ever rolled with someone in jujitsu, you know that the soon, as soon as you put your hands on someone, whether you grab their, their lapel or you grab you get, you get, you know, their, their pants or sleeve and you begin to feel their strength and they feel yours, you get to see what that man is about. Whatever happened to that man? Like, do, do you have a son? I have a nine-year-old boy. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure you wrestle with them. you roughhouse. Fuck yeah, man. Right? Like, he loves that. He yeah. needs that. Like, my son needed that from me. And he was testing me. And I was testing him. Mm -hmm. And you look at John Eldridge's book, Wild at Heart. He talks about that. That it is our job as fathers to instill masculinity for them to become courageous and confident, to become savages and servants. Mm -hmm. But all that's died and all that has died because also divorce is at a much higher rate than ever before. I believe that, yeah, okay, it's 50% divorce rate, which means there are a lot of young men who don't have the fathers in their life mm. as they should. And those fathers don't even know how to role model masculinity, don't know how to become, to be a modern day knight. Uh, the reason knights had squires was to be able to take those squires, those young men, and raise them into gentlemen, courageous, chivalrous young men who can also stand in the gap against good and evil. And that's all stopped. Like tribes for thousands of years had a rite of passage for their boys that, that gave you a seat at the table with the, with, the, with the men to be able to defend and protect the tribe and the community. All that has gone, and I believe mm -hmm. that it has all gone through, through divorce, uh, by decision, by managing thought patterns through social media, television, movies, etc. So then what do we have left? We have few voices like me who are willing to say, hey, you know what? It's actually okay to be a man. You can test your strength. You can be courageous. You, there is no such thing as toxic masculinity. There's such thing as nice guys, mm -hmm. nice guys who are passive aggressive, mm -hmm. who will, and those are the most dangerous types of men, <laughs> right? Once again, Jordan Peterson talks about that because they're nice guys. They don't, they don't have strength. They don't have courage. Mm -hmm. They don't have honor. And because of that, those are the backstabbers. Those are the scariest ones. I think mm -hmm. passive aggressive people in general yeah. scare the absolute fuck out of me. Absolutely. Because they come when you don't see them. Bingo. Right? And, you know, interesting point that you made about, you know, the divisiveness, the government and everything. Like social media has made it so easy for them to take their strings and do this, yeah. light the match and walk the fuck away and watch everybody fight against each other and make it easier for that toxic masculinity to yeah. be labeled and nobody fighting back. Bingo, bingo. You know, and, and what has been one of the things, uh, and I, I, don't even know, I don't even know if that's a question, to be quite honest with you, but something happens to a man when they go to war, right? Whether it's in a real war, they come back and they said they build, right? And they go to the squire program with their sons, they come back and they build, or the MDK project, come back and build. There is a chamber in your mind when you meet your higher self, right, that mm -hmm. turns you in, it's like the fission point where the nuclear bomb goes off, yep. and you're a different man. Can you talk to my listeners about that one moment for you? 
and what it felt like. Yeah, that, that one moment for me was a very specific Monday morning of a flipping of a switch. It was 2013 or 2014, and I write about it in my book, Man Up, and I, I say that, you know, I, so it's like my house, and then there's the pool deck, and then um, beyond the pool deck is a, is a multi-car garage, and above the garage is our guest house. And I play the drums, and so I have my drums in the guest house. Sunday night, I went and played the drums, uh, but because I'm flat-footed, it's easier for me to play barefoot. So I had taken my shoes off, left them at the guest mm -hmm. house, came back in. Monday morning, I'm looking for my tennis shoes, and I can't find it. So I'm like, that's right, they're in the guest house. So grab all my shit, you know, stressed out, hurry to get out the door, <laughs> go up there, grab my shoes. As I bend over to grab my, my uh, tennis shoes, like all of a sudden, my heart starts racing. I just break out in the sweat. Both arms are tingling. I go tunnel vision, and I could hear the heartbeat in my ear, like real quick. Da -da 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 -da. I'm like, what the hell is going on? Now I'm getting lightheaded. I'm like, holy smokes, mm. I'm 38 years old, and I'm having a heart attack. And I realized in that moment, like, holy smokes, if, if I die right now, my wife's not going to know that I'm up here. My kids are already on their way to school. Like, they're going to find me in the morning you know, or in the evening bloated and just stiff as a board. Mm -hmm. And what even ran through my mind, Sean, was the fact that I broke a promise to my wife till death do us part, because I thought death would be way in the 80s and <laughs> 90s. And then, of course, that I felt like, who's going to walk Chloe down the aisle? Mm. Who's going to teach Andrew to be a modern-day knight? Like, those are all the things that I wanted. And here I am at 38 dying. I thought I was having a heart attack, man. And so I go, all right, if I just stumble down the staircase, somehow die on the pool deck, they'll find me sooner and it won't be so, so, isn't it weird how they- This is a better place to fucking bro, die, that's, on the pool deck. It's where they, your kids can never go swimming in that pool again, yeah. but anyway, go. Exactly. Like, I was like, okay, I don't want to traumatize them by yeah. them finding dad all bloated and stiff, yeah. right? So if they can find me sooner, hopefully I'll have some resemblance of a- It's a good plan. Human. I get it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But- but it is also trippy that I accepted death so easily, too. Yeah. yeah I always think about There's that. There's something behind that. Long story short, I realized, okay, as I walked down the staircase trying to just gather myself, I don't know if it was the fresh air or what, but every, all the symptoms went away. The next day I was at the doctor's office because I told my wife about it, and she's like, we're going to the doctor. And he's like, dude, that was an anxiety attack. Mm. What you had is an anxiety attack. Are you stressed? And before I can say yes, she's like, yes, he's stressed. He's taking NyQuil every night and Vicodin to fall asleep. Mm -hmm. Handfuls of Adderall in the morning to wake back up. The guy's a fucking mess. You know, like our finances are all fucked. Mm -hmm. da, 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 da. I'm like, holy shit. Yeah, everything she said, doc. Yeah, yeah. Right? So he puts me on Xanax. But that to me was the flipping of a switch. Of course, Xanax, after four days of Xanax use, I was like, I'm not doing this. It, it made me numb. It made me unmotivated, no sense of urgency. So I said, hey, doc, what do I do instead of Xanax? He goes, talk therapy. I'm like, fine. So I started working with the therapist 15 months later, really learned how to overcome all the traumas that I had gone through. I was molested as a kid, kept it inside, uh, told to go back to your own country and beat up by all these kids when I came out to the United States because I'm the foreigner and mm -hmm. you know we lived in Section 8 housing, uh, a lot of gangs and stuff and a lot of fights I got into. And you, you keep all that internalized and you think like, I'm over it. It's not going to cause any disaster in my life. But you're walking around with all this baggage and you're reacting to people in a way that, because you can't trust them, you don't feel safe, you don't feel lovable, you feel broken, you have shame, you have rage, you have confusion. And I was trying to be married, be a dad, start businesses, have employees and business partner. That wasn't going to work. So it all mm -hmm. came crumbling down. That day of the anxiety attack was the flipping of a switch. I knew that, okay, now I'm allowed to live 
things will change. I didn't know how, but that was the flipping of the switch. And at the project, at the Squire program, we help men and sons realize that you can flip the switch and become your higher self. And it is going to take work to become your higher self. But if you don't do that, what is the alternative? Mm. Constant anxiety, depression, shame, and guilt. And here's why. Your conscience, everybody's conscience knows. Like, you know deep down inside what you need to do every morning. Every single morning. We might hit the snooze button. We might ignore the gym. We might make some bullshit excuse why we're not going to eat clean today. But our conscience knows, like, dude, that that was an L. Mm -hmm. That was not a W today. And so with that in mind, if your conscience knows, how is your conscience going to remind you that, hey, Sean, you know, you didn't lift your higher potential. It is going to remind you by knocking on your door through stress, anxiety, depression, shame, and guilt, all low vibrational frequencies, right? Our job is not to try and see how do we manage our anxieties and depression. It is to go, hey, consciousness, you know what? Duly noted, I will start working out, eating right, being congruent with the man I want to be. So you have to do hard shit to become a hard man because men are designed to do hard stuff. And when you do soft stuff, like pull out your phone, order a Jolly Burger with extra onions, and then watch it come to you, uh, and you realize it's stuck at the intersection, and you get frustrated. <laughs> it's two minutes away. Like, what the hell, yeah. bro? Like, that is what men have been reduced down to. Is mm -hmm. like, they, they get frustrated and angry at their phones because their Jolly Burger is an extra mile away. <laughs> Instead, do hard shit. Be a part of a brotherhood or a tribe of like-minded people who want to self-actualize, develop self-mastery. And when you do, you will find purpose. And through purpose, you will avoid anxiety, depression, shame, and guilt. And that is what we do at the project by helping men overcome all the limiting beliefs and the traumas that they've dealt with in life, helping them break through the glass ceilings and rediscovering their higher self. I love that because on that path and finding your higher self, you know who really benefits? The wives, mm -hmm. the children's, the children yeah. that you have. Because I, I can tell you, you know, there's been many times where I haven't been incongruent with what I'm saying I'm going to do. Yeah. I'm a human being, right? And those are the moments that I get frustrated at myself, which cause that that anxiety. Right. Which and then your fucking kids come up to you at that point of anxiety and you ignore them. Mm-hmm. Or you snap at them. Right. And, and you know, they didn't ask to be here, man. They, they need a dad that is fucking strong, yeah. right? Yeah. They never get the best of us when we are all worked up and anxious and depressed and all highly wound up. And so, like, like you said, the people that get the best of us, when they get the best of us, is when we have found purpose and are doing what we're called to do. How do you do that? You do the hard shit. Yeah. 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 I think people and, and, and you can, you know, I'd love to hear your feedback on it, but people get really scared to do hard shit because it hurts and it they feel like their comfort zone is where they need to be. Why do you think people are so enlisted in staying comfortable on a day to day basis? And I think this speaks specifically to men, by the way, although women are not absolved of doing hard stuff either, because you look at in Africa still, women would take those giant uh, buckets and they walk miles to get water mm -hmm. and carry that water back all while yeah. having a baby attached to their chest yeah. breastfeeding, right? Mm -hmm. And the men are supposed to be digging wells and hunting for food and building shelter, etc. It is in our DNA to do hard stuff. Like it's so funny, right? Because um, I've got this German Shepherd dog. She's mm -hmm. part German Shepherd, part Mastiff. Her name is Cookie. When we rescued her, and I, I think I'm going to be able to answer your question this way. When we rescued her, 
she was eight months old and about 90 pounds. And she was pulling my wife around, my kids around, me around, like she was strong. And so we hired this dog trainer. The lady comes in, works with Cookie for about two, three weeks, teaches her to heal and sit and stay and roll over, shake hands, twirl, all this bullshit. But then she pulls me aside. She goes, hey, I need to talk to you. Come here. I'm like, yes, ma'am. What's up? She said, well, your dog here, she's part German Shepherd. And therefore, as German Shepherds, she needs to be, be she needs to have a sense of purpose. So she needs to feel like she's guarding your kids and shepherding your kids and protecting your home. Okay. And she needs a routine, a routine that she can, that will keep her engaged. So maybe every morning at the same time, you can throw the ball 10 to 15 times with her mm -hmm. and she can play catch. Because if you don't do that, she's just going to go and seek out comfort sitting on your couch or wherever every morning, but then start to get anxious and depressed. She goes, then do you know what happens when she's anxious and depressed? I'm like, no idea. She'll bite. She goes, you see that beautiful rose garden you have? Yeah. She start digging holes in your backyard. I go, how come? She goes, well, in the absence of having purpose and a routine, she will give herself some level, some sense of purpose and routine, which is to dig holes and fuck up your backyard, mm -hmm. right? I'm like, holy smokes. So she will resort to comfort because we're not doing anything to give her what she needs. But then she will start digging holes to basically have a sense of purpose and service and routine. Well, don't we do the same? We do. When we are in a state of comfort, because it is naturally we're all drawn to comfort. Like I imagine if the caveman all of a sudden had running water and fire was always available at a turn of a knob and somehow he grunted and a big hunk of meat was thrown into his cave. Well, he wouldn't have to go out and fight the saber-toothed tiger to get water and then to go collect wood um, in the rain and then to hit rocks together for two hours to get spark and then to be able to, you know, hunt a dinosaur or whatever the fuck it is that they hunted and some dudes of the tribe got killed so that a few of the other families can have food. That's what they had to do. That was the day-to-day -day living. Mm -hmm. But if he had all of that available to him, he'd just sit there in his cave, be happy for a period of time, short period of time, and then soon start wondering, how can I sabotage my life? What could I do to ruin things, just like a dog? So humans today, when we get too comfortable, when things are too convenient, if we don't lean into doing hard stuff and putting ourselves through adversity and testing our abilities, we begin to dig holes in our life through mm food, alcohol, drugs, gambling, pornography, infidelity, binge watching television, video games, you name yeah. it. You name it. We're no different than that dog. Sure. It, yes, it is very comfortable to be in an air conditioned room with lights and everything. But I know that if I stay in this room and do nothing hard, like right now on this foot, I've got a toenail that is so dark purple and black, it's about to fall off. And then four of the toes on this side have all this like crusty skin on it. And it's all from two weeks ago when we did Suckfest and we, we stayed up 24 hours. And in the final 12 hours from sundown to sunup, we hiked 31 miles. That was not fun. It yeah. was cold. It hurt. But in the absence of that, what am I going to do? Be a fat fuck mm -hmm. that's going to self-sabotage, right? And so you have to be able to push aside comfort and convenience, do hard stuff, test yourself daily in the gym, work out, run, do something awesome. At least on the weekends, do something even longer, more awesome. Or once a month, do something silly. And then once a year, get go out of hand, mm -hmm. do ban go bananas and do suck fest or, you know, I call it suck fest, but we do it every December. Um, but now you know, like, man, I earned my comfort. I mm -hmm. earned my convenience. And so it ain't like I ain't ordering burritos and burgers off a phone. Right. But I'm earning it. Yeah. It's I a reward yeah. for busting my balls and getting calluses 
and not because I got Cheeto dust in my belly button mm -hmm. playing video games and I'm upset that my Jolly Burger hasn't shown up yet. Jolly Burger, is that a real thing? It's not, it's I, not someone should thing. create that. Ed's on it. Ed's on Ed's it. Ed's on it, yeah. he's got it. Yeah. You're, you're, not, you're, you're not training for marathons in your chucks anymore, are you? No, bro, okay, no. But I hated marathon, that marathon so much that once a year I do a marathon now, you right, know, by, by doing that hike. I actually have a bone to pick with you. Do tell. Because, fuck, I, I'm on your website and I'm like, all right, cool, 26.2 marathon challenge. Mm. I'm like, bro, this guy is going to do, you know, a six-week mental fucking toughness course. I'm like, yeah. I'm all in on this shit. Right, and it's so free. I'm, I'm all in on this shit. It wasn't even the free part that got me. I was like, okay, like, what is this? So I, I, I dial in on it, yeah. I put my information in, uh -huh. and then there's a video of you telling me I have to fucking run a marathon now. That sucks, doesn't and, it? And you know what, today was day one. And so I ran for 30 minutes. Wait, no shit? I fucking did it, I bro. ran for 30 minutes, bro. For I did real. it, Absolutely. good for God. you. I did. Uh, Are you following minutes. that training program yes, that we I have did. in there? I did, good. 30 minutes, the intermediate, I did a 30 minute jog. Yeah. My headphones were dead from the, from the flight. <laughs> I'm cussing you the whole time because I'm bored as shit. Why am I doing this? I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, yeah. he won't know. But then I'm like, you know what? One foot in front of the other. I get to do this. I get to go through this shit right yeah. now. And eventually, I will run that marathon. Mm. And it's funny because I've always said this my whole life. One of the biggest things I wanted to do was run the marathon. Wait, that's I had something. never ran a marathon. And then I stumble into that shit. And so here we are. Yeah. You know, I'm... I'm I'm, I'm starting it. Bro, you made such a strong point, and in case your audience missed it, I want to bring it back. You said, why am I doing this? He mm -hmm. won't know, mm -hmm. right? But you then finished doing it because your conscience would know, and you would feel incongruent with the version of the man you want to be, the husband, the father, the entrepreneur, the leader, and that's why you did it. And I remember while training for that doggone marathon in 2010, bro, I hated running. Like, I used so much Cestanon and testosterone and Equipoise <laughs> and all that. I used so much shit from Mexico. We would go into Tijuana, Mexico, go into those, those um, pharmacies, the animal pharmacies, and say, yeah, my pig is sick and I need to make him big and muscular. They would give us boxes <laughs> of Cestanon, which is like four testosterone blends mixed together. And I would inject and just lift. I was like 20 pounds bigger than I am now. But I share this with you because I told myself, I'm designed to lift weights and not run. Mm -hmm. And I started to believe that. Yeah, a lot of people believe that shit. Mm -hmm. I can't run. Right. I do, it's really, I don't want to run. I have this narrative in my mind that either I placed on myself or somebody else gave me the opportunity to say it's okay. Right. Right. So, and that's the thing with the audience. And you asked me before the show, what kind of value can you give my audience? It's shit like that. You know, it's, it's the ability to move and do when nobody is fucking watching. Bingo. You know, a lot of people ask me, you know, there's a lot of, very few people that know where I'm at right now. And it's like, oh, bro, that's fucking luck, man. You're lucky. Mm. Nah, man. Like, no. I, I believe everything in life, you, you put in the work, and the people that are meant to be on that journey, you find a way to infuse yourself into those, into yeah. the orbit of that individual. But let me be very clear with everybody. This show started out, nobody knew what the fuck it was, right? It was just, you know, me talking on the air. Now, talk, sitting here with you in person. This shit is not comfortable. It was not comfortable for me to walk into this building today. Sure. Right? But I knew it was the thing. It was the, that inflection point of, okay, this is a barrier. This is, as you would say, your critic, mm -hmm. right? And your advocate fucking fighting right yeah. now. Right. right. Right? So for those of my listeners that don't know about the, the advocate and the, crit and the critic, Chat with him about that really quickly. Sure, sure. So, so all of us have, have these two, two voices in our heads. 
and I, and I want to draw a, a picture. So let's use a metaphor. You're driving a car. It's just you. And then someone's riding shotgun. That's someone that's riding the shotgun. For most people, like 95% of people, that voice that's riding shotgun is your inner critic. Mm. The voice that says, you can't, you're not good enough. You were never smart enough. You weren't tall enough. You don't have the genetics. What makes you think you can? You didn't go to college. You didn't, you weren't, whatever. You don't have the opportunities. The judgmental voice. At the project, we call that voice the inner bitch, yeah. right? And we say, look, at some point, you're going to flip the switch during the 75 hours of the project. And when you do, you're going to have taken that inner bitch out of the passenger seat and brought out your inner beast mm -hmm. and put him in there. Your inner beast is your advocate, your inner mm -hmm. advocate that says, bro, you could do it. You've got everything that it takes. You you got bloody hands because you swung that bat so many times. Now you're just in a different industry, but swing that bat. You got this. I support you. I believe in you. And I'm here to catch you if you fall. We tend to take that inner advocate and we zip tie his arms, gag him, and then put him in the trunk. And all you hear is this muttering of what you think might be, I believe in you. You're awesome. You're great. But you can't even tell because he's gagged and zip tied and he's in the trunk. And then we sit the critic in the passenger seat riding shotgun with us, telling us how we're incapable, unable, we're losers, we're not lovable, we're broken, you can't, you'll get judged. What if you get rejected? Mm -hmm. Now, when I tell people that, they're like, so all I got to do is pull over and kick the critic out, huh? No, no, life's not like yeah, that. That would be God fucking sweet, right? God didn't build us <laughs> for that. Could you imagine how... We would literally be godlike mm -hmm. if we no longer had the critic to deal with. Right. We need the critic in the car with us at all times. It is the only way we will value the advocate. Mm -hmm. It is the only way we can develop enough strength. You know, people go to the gym, they build their muscles. They don't forget that there are mental muscles, emotional muscles, muscles of resiliency that they need to build. Well, you will not be resilient if all you have is an advocate in the car. So we just need to move the advocate to the front seat and allow him to speak, and then duct tape and zip tie the critic and leave him in the trunk so that we always know that the kryptonite, could you imagine if Superman was no longer allergic to kryptonite? He wouldn't, we wouldn't be interested in him. In fact, yeah. the, the whole story of Superman, they later, year, decades later, they introduced kryptonite because people stopped reading the comic books. They're like, okay, bad guy comes, Superman kills him again. There's no, no weakness. He's got no weakness. Yeah. But yeah. then when they introduced kryptonite, now That's when it flipped. Superman was yeah. interesting, right? Yeah. Our kryptonite is the critic. It needs to be in the trunk. Some days it might come to the back seat, mm -hmm. but it should never make it in the passenger seat because that seat is specifically there for the advocate. I love that shit so much, man. And it's so funny because, and I want the listeners to really, and the people that are watching this, uh, is that inner critic or that bitch voice, inner bitch, is it just going to get in the back seat hogtied or the, the trunk because you say so? You have to put in the fucking work. Mm -hmm. The best way to silence that critic is do the damn shit. Yep. Like you say, lean into the hard things. First thing in the morning, hit the gym. You know, accidentally sign up for a fucking marathon challenge. Like do something completely crazy to a point where you're pushing yourself every single day to give yourself the evidence that you're deserving of having the advocate. Bingo. Riding shotgun. Bingo. Give yourself the evidence that you're deserving of having the advocate drive shotgun. Because, like I said, you can't just kick that thing out. And if people want to know, how do I hogtie the, the critic and get the advocate in the front seat? It is through the work. Mm -hmm. It is like, how do I build jacked arms? Well, go to the gym every day and lift and then eat the kind of proteins you need to eat and low fat and low carbs to 
show the leanness and you will have jacked arms. Like there's a formula to everything and hardship, adversity, mm -hmm. suffering, like controlled suffering, not suffering like someone's choking yeah, you yeah. out. But suffering by doing hard stuff allows you to go to that higher place and you start developing control over the inner conversation. And that's what we need. People feel like, I have no control over the voices within me. My inner voices are always negative. In fact, what do they say? 85% of the conversation that you have with yourself is negative. And they, mm -hmm. we have somewhere between 40,000 and 70,000 conversations in our head. And if 85% of those are negative, what if you could do hard shit and begin to control the conversations? Yeah. Most of the time, not all the time, Sean, but most of the time I only have one conversation in my head and that is, I love myself. Mm. That is, I love myself. That has become my mantra. That is the thing that I say before I go up on stage. I will stand in the corner, jump up and down. I love myself. I love mm. myself. I love myself. And I say it so much and I absolutely believe that. But I've done the work to reinforce that. If That's I was it. a fat fuck who hadn't achieved anything and hadn't done any self work to achieve mastery, then when I said I love myself, the critic would be like, no, you don't. You're yeah, a that's phony. a fucking, you're, you're, you're lying to yourself. Yeah, like you're that. a phony. You're, you're an imposter at that point. Yeah. yeah, it's funny because I I think when I was 38, I dealt with something similar to you. I was 264 pounds. I don't even know how my wife fell in love with me, to be quite honest with you, because she's an absolute 12, and I was this 264-pound fucking fat ass, and I had that moment. That, that moment where I sat there and said, I'm not shit because mm. I'm not even trying to silence the voices in my head. You know, so I started putting in the work. She bet me I couldn't work out for 30 days straight. So I did it. And I said, ha, Good fucking you, did man. it. And she goes, shit, that was for you. Do it again. I was like, fuck, this is going to be my wife. Mm -hmm. This is somebody who supports me, who drives me. Every single day. So I, I think that, you know, to your point when you're sitting there, you're jumping out up and down, you know, before you get on stage or I'm sitting there in the Uber, you know, while the Chinese driver and he's talking to me. And I don't know what the fuck he's saying. <laughs> the, the, the phone, the Uber app is, is, is coming at me in Cantonese. I don't know what's going on, <laughs> which is fine. But he's asking me, where, where, where are you going? I'm like, I don't know. Right. It's right there on like the thing. If I knew, follow, I'd be driving Follow it, the right? fucking blue outline. <laughs> yeah. Right. But the point is, and I'm sitting there, I can, I. I got this. I got this. I got mm -hmm. this. I love myself. Yeah. But it's because I have put in the work in this specific field to be in the room. Yeah. And you just, guys, you just have to do enough work for, with yourself to get in the room and, and, and show that you do love yourself. Because there's too many people out there right now saying you should love yourself anyway. Right. You know, the body positivity or mm -mm. like, hey, you're great the way you are. The moment someone tells me, Sean, you're great the way you are, fuck you, get out of my life. Right. I don't have unconditional love for myself. No. The love I have for myself is very conditional. Mm -hmm. Based on the work that I do, the promises that I keep, the man that I show up to as my to my wife and to my kids, to my team, those are the conditions that I'm allowed to love myself. Mm -hmm. And people are like, whoa, you're being hard on yourself. Good. More yep. people should be hard on themselves. Set unreasonable expectations. Meet those expectations and go beyond them. We've set such low expectations that we swim in that sea of mediocrity. And then we go, well, you know, I've got unconditional love for myself and I'm not going to be hard on my... Really? Really mm. be a little hard on yourself and see what happens. Life yeah. actually gets better. I wonder, I wonder when that started, right? Because it's like, to me, like, I, I you know, and, and again, to be fair, you know, my wife does say, hey, you're too hard on yourself. I hear you. I just don't subscribe to it, right. right? It's what drives me. And it could be my Achilles heel at times. Sure. But you know what? I'm willing to take that fucking gamble. Yeah. You know, so I keep, I keep going with that, that hard hammer on myself. Yeah. You know, what would you say to the listeners that are just, 
you know, shying away from that hard hammer on life on, the, on their own selves? Well, you know, what I would tell them is something that I've heard Ed Milet say. So let's give credit to Ed, where mm -hmm. he says, he says, if you believe in God, then imagine that God has already created an image of you, the perfect <laughs> version of you that's already up there in heaven. And so imagine when you die and then you go up to heaven and you're standing at the pearly gates and God says, hey, I want you to meet Bedros. And I'm like, I don't recognize mm -hmm. that guy. That yeah. is not, that's, I don't feel like I'm looking in the mirror. You yeah. know, I am not that guy. That would be the greatest pain of, like I feel this weirdness right now in my mm -hmm. gut, like, oh my God, I don't want that regret on my deathbed. Yeah. And so I would tell your listeners, like, imagine that. Could you imagine meeting the perfect version of yourself up there and then realizing you are so not like that person? Mm -hmm. What a great sense of lifelong regret. I think that's what hell is. I think that would be my personal hell. And my audience has heard me say that before. I wasn't aware that was Ed Milet, but uh, all, all due respect to Uncle Ed, because that is a powerful point. Mm -hmm. My biggest fear in life is getting to heaven and not knowing who I am. Yeah. That scares me, yeah. right? And, and you know, that, that that part's scary. That's my personal hell. But I think hell on earth would be my children and my wife never meeting the man I'm supposed to be. Right, right. Don't I owe it to them? Don't you owe it to your family? I, I think if life was a, a series of bullseyes, a bullseye and then all the rings, right? Like a target, like the center of that bullseye. I always tell the guys at the project, I go, look, you didn't pick your parents. You didn't pick your kids. Mm -hmm. You didn't pick your siblings. Because you didn't even pick your kids. Like you had your kids. And hopefully they're awesome. The only person you picked was your spouse, mm -hmm. right? So wouldn't you want to give the best version of yourself to the person, only person you picked? And then the next ring, the very first ring, your kids. And then then you got your outer friends. And then you got your business, etc. Mm. But man, the P and how funny that most of us will give the best of us of what we have to those outer rings mm -hmm. and only give the crumbs, the frustrated, upset, passive, aggressive version to our wife and kids. It's so timely you speak about that because in 2022, I found myself giving my wife the crumbs. Mm. She's like, you know, you give so much to everybody else, your clients, uh, your guests on mm -hmm. your show, you give your show so much love and want to give, it, give your show the best of you. But what about your wife? What about your kids? And so I, I, it was to me, there was a bunch of learning lessons in 2022 on that. Sure. And in 2023, you know, we've already been on one, January 1, took her to the fucking melting pot, had an amazing date. I, I dated my wife and Good it felt you. amazing. Yeah. And we have another date scheduled with Sitter. So my point is, and when you say the, the outer rings, like that one person, that's the person that should get the best of you. Agreed. Because you chose that person. So um, we're going to land the plane here, brother. But, uh, you know, uh, for, for my audience that wants to learn more about you and be involved in some of the things that you get you have going on, and including being trick-fucked into a marathon, where can they find you? <laughs> well, the best place to find me is on Instagram <laughs> at BedroseKoolian or just BedroseKoolian.com. Yeah, awesome. And, and obviously, I'll have that in the show notes for them to pick up. But uh, I really appreciate you, brother. And, Thank you. You know, I look forward to many more interactions and, uh, and a new friendship with you. And once again, thanks for being on the show. Likewise, appreciate it. Yeah.